I love tourist traps. Before you judge me too harshly, I'm sure you have some outstanding memory of one yourself. There's just something about them, especially the more archaic, the more decorative spots. There's some sense of charm in what a place used to be. It's like seeing pictures of your older relatives when they were in high school. You've only known them in their current age years later, but seeing them at the age that you are gives you this sense of nostalgia of the people they once were and the lives they once lived. There's a similar energy at some of these fantastic tourist traps. You see what it used to be, the magic that used to fill the air, crackling with voices and footsteps and music. They're not all so magical. Florida is rife with tourist traps, from tchotchke shops to unusual museums to strange photo opportunities. Everywhere that is remotely attractive to a tourist has somewhere cheap and goofy that is almost irresistible. In St. Augustine, there is a bus tour that will take you to all these supposedly haunted locations where actors hide in the shadows and tell you spooky stories with corny accents. In the Everglades, you can hop on any number of airboat tour that will truck you into the wetlands so that you can hear an alligator and listen to some folklore. Just east of Tampa, there's a park called Dinosaur World, where visitors can stop in and look at scientifically inaccurate statues of dinosaurs with flashy colors. Everywhere you go, there are any number of stores where you can buy bottles of fake gold, statues of mermaids, baseball hats with fish on them, and signs that read, I'd rather be at the beach. I've never been a visitor to Florida, so these shops are not exactly magical, but they still evoke a sense of yearning of the days when you could just buy a little treasure map and imagine the beaches as your own personal adventure. Nostalgia, however, only goes so far. A rundown tourist trap can be cute in its own way, a trip through history, but others feel sunwashed and forgotten. A perfect example of this for me is a little town called Tarpon Springs, north of Clearwater on the west coast. I loved this place as a kid. It was a Greek community back in the day, famous for its boats that would putter out to the bay and return with nets filled to the brim with natural sponges. They'd sell the sponges in huge baskets on the storefronts, sponges of all varieties, egg-shaped yellow ones, tubular pale ones, little orbs. There were also amazing Greek restaurants with cakes and cookies glistening in the front window, begging you to come inside for a snack. The waitresses inside would pinch my cheeks and call me by my full name, Nicholas. Though I'm Italian, Nicholas is an extremely popular Greek name, and the kind folks inside treated me and my family like kin. One plaza had a sea turtle statue and a fake shark hanging over a huge model boat. As a kid, this place was a playground, everything I would soon love about Florida. Culture, food, adventure. I returned to Tarpon Springs last year, however, under the blistering sun of a mid-July day. The heat was physical, pushing down on me and my family. It was my grandmother's birthday, and we were seeking out a nostalgia-wrapped trip to our old vacation stomping grounds. But something wasn't right. Everything felt out of place. The quirky shops started to feel like duplicates of every other shop I had ever seen. The fake animals in the square had become so sun-bleached that their paint cracked, making for a grisly sight. The white and blue of the walls reflected the sunlight back into our eyes, and when we stepped inside, it would be a full 10 seconds before our vision adjusted. We spent maybe 30 minutes along the main street just glancing for a moment into our old restaurant before surrendering to our exhaustion and returning to our car. Memories wrap up good moments like this in glittering images and focus in on the fine details. Remember the cookies and the sponges and the sunsets? I do. Still. But it's been written about a million times. You can never really go home again. 
Tourist spots often live longer than their expiration date, and the status quo often propels them away from change, away from the idea that adapting to modern tourism might flourish their businesses. Disney, Universal, and SeaWorld have adapted in a thousand different ways, but they have the money to afford those changes. Smaller parks and spots like Gatorland or Dino World have crossed all the way into antiques, fantastic little time capsules of time gone by. They're the lucky ones, resilient enough to stand the test of time in the same space as the Titans. Some don't last quite so long, fated to be pushed aside, never to be heard from again. One such park was the Marco Polo Park, an unusual theme park founded in Flagler County, southwest of St. Augustine. It was open for only about six years, a colossal failure in a time of massive tourism in Central Florida. You see, Marco Polo Park had the unfortunate fate of opening on December 28, 1970, just nine months before the Magic Kingdom would open in Orlando and change the state's tourism game. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Every week, I take you into a story about Florida's history and culture. The aim is to learn a little more about our unusual state and the things that make us tick. This week, Marco Polo Park, its ambitious founding, and the bubble that Disney popped. The golden sand and gentle tropical breezes make the entire coast a paradise for sun lovers of all ages. Wherever you vacation on the East Coast, a beach is just a step away. Sailfish flourish in the Gulf Stream just a mile offshore. Here's a six-footer, about average size, fighting it out with a determined fisherman. This was Florida's face in the early 1960s. Natural, luxury, quality time in a beautiful environment. The America of post-war grew more and more interested in luxury as the middle class sought out cheap and viable vacations. It was simply part of the American dream. Everyone deserved a vacation. With Disneyland changing the game in California, the conversation on tourism expanded to every state in the Union. Everyone had cars and time, so how do we lure them to our beach or our forest or our city? Well, first we have to build hotels. Holiday Inns started opening everywhere in the early 1950s, specifically targeting middle-class families, and air travel became more and more accessible as that decade came to an end. On top of this, the materialism of the 1950s was falling to the wayside. Baby boomers were seeing the beginning surges of massive social change, and their parents were seeking out experiences over possessions. A new car was nice, but where that car could take you was far better. Tourism boards hopped onto this idea, sharing that the gateway to America's natural splendor was just a road trip away. But Walt Disney discovered that those who would travel for vacations wouldn't travel very far. In fact, only about 2% of the people visiting Disneyland in California were from east of the Mississippi. No one wanted to travel very far, and Disney, ever the efficient businessman, saw that the future success of his theme park empire depended on a two-park system, one for the West Coast and one for the East. So he started shopping cities, hopping around the country with his brother, seeking out a spot that would call his name. He almost picked St. Louis, but he was called even further east. In 1963, on a famous plane trip over South Orlando, he saw Lake Buena Vista, a spot of land not too small, not too far away, but just right. It would be another two years, but in 1965, in a famous meeting with Governor Hayden Burns, 
the Disney company announced their quote-unquote Florida project. Six years later, on October 1st, 1971, Walt Disney World Florida opened. You can fly to a magic kingdom that's right outside your hotel window. To Walt Disney World in Florida. On Easter, the airline of Walt Disney World. The airline that believes dreams really can come true. The wings of man. A theme park was just the beginning. In that six-year pocket between 1965 and 1971, the anticipation for Central Florida was astounding. Walt passed a few months after the announcement, but his company moved forward and broke ground in 1967. Within two years, we were the sixth largest growing city in the country, multiplying our population by the fistful and establishing ourselves as not just a place to visit, but a place to stay. Disney and their local friends worked to get Orlando an airport, a university, an interstate, and tens of thousands of new citizens. Then, over on the East Coast, a man named O.L. White had an idea. The idea was simple. You would follow in the footsteps of the famous Italian explorer Marco Polo as he departed from his home in Italy to explore the outer edges of the Asian continent. As you arrive, you are greeted by a massive Venice-inspired building with a river running along the front. Postcards of the time feature a cartoon mascot of Marco Polo with a large mustache and beard, a bulbous nose, and huge cartoonish eyes. Why it isn't simply a man dressed up in 13th century clothing is beyond me. Instead, this tall caricature will take pictures with guests outside of the gates and then lead you into the rest of the park, into his world adventures. The rest of the park is split into four parts, Turkey, India, China, and Japan. The rides were oriented to the individual park's countries, such as a flying elephant ride in India and a spinning teacup ride in China. The most expansive of the sections was Japan, about 500 acres of land with a massive Ferris wheel, a botanical garden, and a theater in which authentic Japanese performers would put on traditional shows, including Japanese puppet shows that are still remembered today as fan favorites. Mr. White served as the president of the Daytona Regional Chamber of Commerce and went on to be a developer in his community. He moved to the beaches from Kentucky in 1954 with his family in tow. Flagler County, where he lived, had already tried for 20 years to bring a theme park to its shores. There was Sea Zoo, Bongo Land, Tropical Park, Atomic Tunnel, Seafood Ski Show, just to name a few. One famous spot, Marineland, still exists today in an isolated spot along the Atlantic coast, but all the others perished. When White came to Flagler County, he built up motels and hotels along the beaches so that all of the attraction to the coast would bring loads of money to the market as the visitors would come for the beaches but stay for the beachside rooms. White knew how tourism worked, and White knew that Disney was coming. He had an idea different from everyone else. Capitalism is built on competition, and everyone in the state of Florida was trying to be the competition to Disney World. It was a battle they were always going to lose. You couldn't beat the mouse. But White didn't want to be an alternative to Orlando's future empire. Sure, he wanted to compete, but he wanted Marco Polo Park to be a complement to your trip, a place to extend your visit. Walt Disney believed that Americans from the east of the country would be more likely to travel to Orlando, and O.L. White heard it loud and clear. 
He bought land in an undeveloped patch of trees on the west side of I-95 on a road called Old Dixie Highway. There wasn't even an exit from the highway to get to the area he had purchased. It had to be built just for Marco Polo Park. Nothing else was out there. This was a gamble. But Mr. White had a lot of faith to back up the money he was putting in. Firstly, he knew that people were interested in Flagler County. He knew that people were traveling here because they wanted to visit a unique spot. Secondly, those traveling to Orlando via I-95, coming or going, could be pulled right off the interstate for just a quick little trip to Marco Polo Park. The park didn't have to be an alternative to Disney. It could be an extension of the trip, a thrilling intro or a lovely outro, an appetizer or a dessert. There was certainly a lot to do at the park. Beyond the makeshift countries you could visit, White also had one of the most ambitious theme park ideas I have heard in my life. The idea was that in one central round glass building, you could experience the entire diversity of Earth's ecosystems. You could enter the building and visit a frigid tundra, and a swampy wetland, and a dry forest. There would be naturally growing plants from all around the country, and flowing water and natural sunlight. Epcot had a similar idea called Living with the Land, but that celebrates the efforts of farmers and agricultural innovations. This is more of a feat of engineering, the sort of attraction you'd see at a World's Fair. The World's Fairs were, after all, the beginning of the idea of theme parks. The traditional theme park is now an all-around entertainment experience providing rides and performances and a fantastical environment. A century and a half ago, when the World's Fair began in Victorian-era London, the idea was to bring together the people of the world to celebrate their various accomplishments and sell the importance of their country to the global community. In fact, the exhibition of the very first World's Fair was in a glass-walled building called the Crystal Palace, similar in design, though much larger than the Climatron. As the fairs grew and developed, they became more than just an expo for the world. The very first Ferris wheel was at a World's Fair in Chicago in 1893. That same fair featured pavilions dedicated to the visiting nations. The 1964 World's Fair in Queens, New York is still one of the most famous. Not only did Walt Disney debut his audio animatronics that revolutionized theme parks there, but the whole fair featured fountain shows and carnival rides and expositions by 80 different nations. If you break up these elements into disparate parts, you can see all of these things in almost every theme park in the world, especially Disney. And O.L. was right on board with these ideas, following the trends exactly with his international expositions and his feats of innovation. With all of this being true, Marco Polo Park should have been a massive hit, a quirky success that stands to this day. But when it came down to it, Marco Polo Park faced the same fate as so many others, not because it wasn't a good idea or because it wasn't executed well, but because a series of unfortunate circumstances led to its inevitable downfall. Firstly, the Climatron, which would have been a huge draw, never got built. The park itself was already going to cost about $12 million to create, which is over $80 million in today's cash. The Climatron alone would have been an additional $8 million, about $56 million today. It was just untenable for the budget. The plan to include a model of the infamous Titanic was also scrapped due to costs. So what was left was five themed areas, only one of which was a fully fleshed out celebration of the country of which it was representing, Japan. 
To this day, the puppet shows and live performances are remembered fondly by those who visited, but to make things worse, the year the park opened, 1970, proved to be an extremely painful year for the country's economy, as nearly everything was more expensive and became even more so the following year. It was the beginning of a recession in this country, and the park wasn't bringing in enough cash to survive. To make things even worse, when they built the exit off of I-95, the planners left in a fatal flaw. They only built a northbound exit, meaning only those traveling north on the interstate would be able to visit, and the southbound travelers didn't have a chance. If you were traveling to Orlando from Georgia or beyond, would you be more likely to stop at a little park as you were going to Orlando, fresh and eager for the trip, or after as your body recovered from a family trip to a packed theme park? Exactly. White's plan to be a continuation of the Disney visit failed. As time went on and money drained from the park, visitors arrived less and less. Another factor was an oil embargo that massively hiked the cost of gasoline. Disney already had its own airline to bring guests directly to Orlando, but now even the population of those traveling south by car was fewer and fewer. It all culminated in a pair of fires in February of 1975 that nearly destroyed the entire Japanese village. It was torn to the ground shortly after the park realized repairs were nearly impossible. A culprit was never found, though many believe it was arson, perpetrated by an unknown assailant. It's suspicious for many, but no final answers were ever given, so the mystery remains. The park reopened briefly the following year under new ownership and a new name, Passport to Fun World. It didn't turn a profit, and it closed officially in 1976. Everything was sold off in the following years, and O.L. White's Marco Polo Park was no more. Today, the spot where Marco Polo Park sat does not scream of a tourist attraction. To the west is the outer edge of the Ocala National Forest. To the east are a number of beach towns along the Atlantic. Right along I-95 are three things. The first is a gas station, bustling with travelers. The second is an old motel with a tourism office, both of which have been closed down. Windows have been shattered and a no trespassing sign glares from the shadows. Across the street in the land where the park actually sat is something just as Floridian as theme parks, a gated golf course community. It's called Plantation Bay Golf and Country Club. The title of Plantation is a reference to the Bullo Plantation Ruins Historic State Park just across I-95. The Country Club is blocked off, closed to the public, but there's no sights left of Marco Polo Park anyway. All of the remaining buildings and attractions have been demolished or sold. It's all gone. That's how places like this park go sometimes. Sometimes they flourish and survive like Marineland or Wikiwachi or Gatorland or Dino World. There's a fine line between a fantastic, unique destination and an unusual, miscalculated cash grab. It doesn't help that the theme of this theme park leaves a poor taste in the mouth. Painting the countries of India, Turkey, China, and Japan with a cartoonish brush did not go over well. Theme parks are certainly fantasy-oriented, leaning into our childish dreamscapes, but the best ones hold something real, an authentic manifestation of the places we long to visit, real or imagined. Marco Polo Park took the real and made it imagined. It lost the humanity. They took a simple plan for a successful theme park, with all the right elements, everything where it should be, perfectly positioned, built with care, but none of it mattered. 
In the words of O.L. White himself, quote, you can't compete with the mouse, end quote. We often talk about change on this show, how one thing can grow and shift and alter and realign and become something else. But we rarely talk about how things can just end. Even if you plan everything just right, make it up of all the right parts, even have a plan to compensate for arrival, you can plan it all out and it still doesn't work. But sometimes it does. Sometimes your hard work prevails and you survive for decades, flourishing and growing and seeing the fruits of all your labor. And sometimes you are Marco Polo Park. Either way, good or bad, success or failure, you tried. You have to try. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. This is episode two of our 12-episode second season. Next week, for episode three, I'll take you into the world of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, one of Florida's finest authors. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in the description below. I read every single one, and I'm always looking to hear what you have to say about this show. Your reviews help the show grow and help it improve every single day. You can also reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. While you're there, why not share the episode with your friends? I'm sure you know someone who would love this show. You can also send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com, especially if you have an idea for a future episode. I am always looking for more. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles in the description below, along with a link to more of their fantastic music. I'll be back next Monday with another story. Until then... I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and drink more water. Oh, and here's one more vintage Florida commercial because honestly, I couldn't resist. Florida. When the last leaf of autumn has fallen to the ground, and the icy wind through the empty trees makes a howling sound, at first it drives you indoors, and then it drives you mad. That's when you know you need it, and you know you need it bad. You say it every summer, what makes it go so fast? And later on you wonder, what makes the winter last? While the springtime you've been waiting for, never comes somehow. That's when you know you need it.